long been known as the center of film and television production, but New York City has grown to be a fierce competitor for that title, propelled by both our landmarks, unmistakable streetscapes, a deep pound pool, as well as tax incentives. But it wasn't always that way, and one of the city's first pioneers was the site of the current Kaufman Astoria Studios, with roots in production dating back to 1920. I have with me today both President and CEO Hal Rosenbluth and Vice President Tracy Capune of Kaufman Astoria Studios to discuss the evolution of the studios in Astoria, along with the surrounding community and their big plans for the future. I have to add that I've known Hal and Tracy both for over 10 years, as they've always been involved in the surrounding community and really developed a friendship when we first discussed opening up the movie lot, the Astoria Flea and Food Market, if you could believe it, that was over seven years ago we started our <laughs> Unbelievable. So it's great to have you both with me on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Right. And I think it's fair to say we'd love to have an Astoria Food and Flea this summer, but the pandemic is precluding that. You know, it would have been so fun. You don't realize what you miss most, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So how Kaufman Astoria Studios is going to get ready to celebrate its 100th year anniversary. Can you share a little bit about the history of the studios and how it all really got started? Yeah, this is our 100th anniversary. It's, a, it's not a way we wanted to celebrate. We had a lot of plans. Tracy was involved in doing a lot of great planning for celebrate our 100th birthday and give it the honor that it, it, it deserved. But unfortunately, COVID has prevented us from, from doing that. Um, the studio uh, opened in 1920 uh, by famous players Lasky, which was Jesse Lasky and Adolph Zucker. And they built the studio where it sits right now because they were looking to be able to capture the best acting talent in the world. Best acting talent in the world was Broadway and vaudeville. So they built it to be able to capture them and was able to get actresses like Gloria Swanson and Claudia Colbert, actors like uh, Rudolph Valentino. Uh, and then as talkies came in, they were convincing folks like the Marx Brothers, who were then Broadway stars, to come and do uh, animal crackers and then coconuts um, during the day and promised to get them back in time for curtain call uh, in the evening. Uh, in, as we enter into the 30s, Zucker decides to run Paramount from the West Coast. And folks like uh, the March Brothers realized that fame and fortune was an awful lot easier on film than eight curtain calls a week. So they kind of followed out to the West Coast and, and Zucker ran Paramount from out there. And the studio was run as independents. Um, it's just similar to how we're operating. If you needed mm -hmm. a stage, you rent your stage. Uh, in, the, in the early 40s comes the US Army. And by 1942, officially became the Army Pictorial Center. And it became a top secret base because every moving image that the armed forces saw from 1940 to 1970 was done or controlled out of the studio. Huh. Um, so the history is pretty amazing. Actually, when we got there, there were still barrels of rations, areas that had ferrodite shielding because it prevented uh, bugging, you know, because they, at least for the RF frequencies they could conceive of at the time, they were not conceiving of cell phones. Um, and even if you were, you or your parents are old enough to remember the movie tone reels, the news reels that were in the movie theater, the narrator was in the basement of the studio as they censored what was, was talked about uh, that went out. So the history is really uh, extraordinary, but the army in 1970 um, decides to change what they're doing and leave, leave Astoria. 
So the comparison I have that Tracy was talking about, uh, the analogy I should say, is you have a, a small town that's dependent upon uh, a local manufacturer. What happens to that small town when the manufacturer goes out of business? Well, that's what happened to this pocket of Astoria. It didn't have that huge impact on the city as a whole, but for this pocket of Astoria, the army had been employing thousands of people and they were spending all their money in the local shops. So it was a huge economic driver for the area. So what happened between 1970 and 1977, the city was going bankrupt in 1970, so it had no money to come and really secure the buildings. So the buildings became very vandalized. They came home to vagrants, homeless, all the kinds of folks you wouldn't want. And even our local councilman talks about riding his bike, dodging the glass on the, on the road uh, coming out of the buildings. And you created a disconnect. And we've heard this from employees whose parents wouldn't allow them to walk south of Broadway. So this is after, think about this thriving facility, mm. employing thousands of people to nothing. And then you as a parent would not let your child go, in essence, cross the border. And, and the reason Broadway was, and Astoria for our listeners, not Broadway in Manhattan. Right. That's right. And because to a parent, nothing good happens in an abandoned building. And to a kid, only fun things happen in an abandoned building. You know, I'm skipping a little bit of the history, but the time George Kaufman won the RFP in late 79, and we got here in 1980, uh, we were doing things like uh, pulling mattresses out of what is now the Museum of the Moving Image. And if sanitation didn't come back in time, the mattresses were back in the building the next morning. So it was really the concept at that point that George realized that he wanted us to create the best production center we could and use it as an anchor to rejuvenate the neighborhood. And so we required some of the local properties. We seeded the money for the Museum of the Moving Image to get started and certainly helped that future, you know, all through the years to grow it to what it is today. And, and it was this idea of the community area being almost like a jigsaw puzzle. So I remember sitting with George in a conference room and all the time, and he would say, how do I bring tumult here? And with tumult is, you know, a little chaos, a little activity, because mm -hmm. no one had wanted to walk on 35th Avenue. And the answer was always get a movie theater. And it took quite a while for that to happen, but it was a concentrated effort to make that happen. And getting the movie theater here allowed things like Pizzeria Uno to come in and Applebee's, you know, and then eventually we were able to get, I remember a phone call from Tony Bennett who said, I have an idea. And the idea was, I want to create an art school. I wanted a story, it needs to be at the studio. And George looked at me and said, let's get that done. Not how much can we get for the property? And the reason was because it fit, that it was a piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. create a audition only city high school uh, of the arts fit right in with the, the thought process. And, you know, and then, you know, we ended up getting, um, uh, being able to get Starbucks in. and we got sort of tired of producers, just like the movies, asking where's the nearest Starbucks. You know, you might remember the time frame. Um, and uh, Tony of the Gazette, he looked at me and he said, you now brought credibility to 35th Avenue. And I went, not the movie theater, not the museum, not the studio. And he was right. You know, that brought the general public wanting to come again, you know, that, that, that Starbucks, that daily go get the coffee. Uh, as we, as Tracy likes to say, the creative entrepreneurs was using it as their office space through the years. Created, Before they were called creative entrepreneurs as a class of industry. <laughs> so, it, you know, for us, it's been very much an involvement in the community. And I think Tracy can talk a little bit more in terms of specifics. And, you know, was, we've been supporting uh, uh, the community since the beginning. So maybe Tracy, you could touch base on a little bit of the arts and culture that you support in the area. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the things that Hal was very clearly trying to articulate was we're, we were fortunate to work in an environment that was created specifically as something intended to benefit its surrounding neighborhood, right? Like that is something I count myself very fortunate to be a part of. And so it's about the studio and the economic activity driven by the studio doing business in this neighborhood. Our clients spend an awful lot of money in and around the neighborhood, but it's also about the commitment this institution has to work with our community partners, either volunteering on boards of directors, Hal and I do a fair bit of that, local giving in the community, activities in the community, like really using the studio as something that fuels more than just the studio business. And I think we were involved with founding the Museum of the Moving Image, but we have stayed involved with the museum. George was on their board of directors. Hal is on their board of directors. I work with the Chocolate Factory and the Queens Theater and Queens Economic Development Corporation. We've been working with Jonathan Forgash and Queens together during this pandemic error to try to help the frontline workers and the restaurants in the neighborhood. So I think there's a real commitment and vis-a-vis -vis the arts, we also saw the studio and its ability to attract arts and artists as a rationale for working with our local councilmen to create Queens first and only arts district. The Kaufman Arts District sprung mm -hmm. up around the studio. Uh, and, and I've always called us the neighborhood within the neighborhood. We're not the Astoria that you think of when you think of the Greek restaurants, that, that's the Dittmar's Boulevard side. And we're not quite Long Island City down on the waterfront. We're sort of between, and I think the Kaufman Arts District really gave us a definition that existed if you knew this neighborhood, because it's a fantastic neighborhood but it, it gave us a sense of place anchored by the studio and the museum. I think Josh is another piece to this. And I think it had the belief of a developer in a, in a community and realizing mm -hmm. that when you, when you, when you want to be successful, you have a responsibility to the community as a whole and you become embedded in the community. And, and I guess the best example I can do when uh, Mount Sinai Queens was raising money for the new hospital, um, we made a decision that, having a upgraded hospital in this community was so beneficial to this community that we had embedded ourselves in that you now have the Kaufman Astoria Studios entrance to their surgical wings. So, you know, uh, when you walk in, you see the, the name up there and there's a reason because we really believed in, in, a, in a story and especially our pocket of Astoria um, and wanted to grow and thrive um, and make what we've been able to do which is economic development and make it sustainable. I mean, a lot of the things we have done is how do you sustain what you have created where we took something that, where, as I said, we're pulling mattresses out of buildings and glass on the, uh, and window glass on the street to something that it has become today, which is a thriving avenue and where, where people are fine walking down or, 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 you know, we put up our Christmas tree and we believe that a large percentage of the neighborhood's Christmas cards are their families standing in front of the Kaufman Christmas tree, you know, and working in, and where we work with the kids, Tracy's done an amazing job. It's one of my happiest days of the year. Tracy and her team deliver- With Jacob Reese. 
the Jacob Reese Settlement Kids at PS 166 after school program do our ornaments every year for this tree. It's amazing. And then we hang all their ornaments on the tree. And, you know, the kids, uh, other than this year, the kids are always there doing this huge countdown, right? And we feed them hot chocolate and cookies. It's, it's one of the happier days of the, of the year for all of us at the studio to see the smiles on their faces because it's their ornament that is, is, is up on the tree. So we're, and we're, we don't tell them and we don't give them a theme. So I personally am always highly entertained to see what themes you get. Like this year, we had some socially conscious Black Lives Matter ornaments. We had all of the South Park kids wearing masks. <laughs> we had some basic art projects and it's just really great. And people stop and like, look at what the ornaments are. It's pretty fun. Yeah, and I think when we talk about the arts district, one of the things that we did that I'm very proud of is if you look at what we call our alleyway, uh, which is between our stage K and the Museum of the Moving Image, we gave a 200 foot wall to Lady Pink when she was working with the kids at the Frank Sinatra School and mm -hmm. teaching them how to scale their art. And to watch these kids on scaffolding uh, painting their artwork on, on the wall and we've left it up there on display uh, we're very proud that it's there and realize these are high school kids that uh, were able to do that. And we hope to continue things like that. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's working with the neighborhood and the institutions that are in this neighborhood to make it help it grow. You know, going back to the movie side of the business, um, you know, a lot of people don't really know what takes place in these big buildings. So can you give a sense of really what the business is and also, you know, maybe some of the iconic shows that are recorded uh, on set there? It's magic. Movie and television making is making magic. Can't give away the secrets, Josh. Sesame uh, Street still is magic though. And that is yeah. probably our best known iconic show that's done here. Yeah, but through the years when we first got here, it was also a goal to try and bring production back to New York. The only production that was really being done in New York were New York-based directors, Woody Allen, Sidney Lumet, Alan Pakula, and we were doing all of their, their films at the time um, and, and working to try and bring the industry back um, to, to New York, and using the studio as sort of that anchor to be able to make that happen. Um, so in the mid eighties, one of the things we were able to demonstrate to Hollywood was that we could do a, a television sitcom in New York as well as they were doing it in Los Angeles, because there were none being done here. And we convinced the Cosby Show to come into the studio. So through those years, we had at that time, the number one rated television show in history being done at the studio. That success of that show brought dozens of television shows of a similar genre into New York. Um, to, so we were able to demonstrate that do that type of work here in New York. And it's grown, we've continued to grow. So Arms New Black, which was one of Netflix's first shows, uh, was home at Kaufman. Uh, Nurse Jackie was there for seven years. Back after 9-11, the very first new production that came into New York, we worked with Mike Nichols to do here at the studio, which was Angels in America. Uh, and that, was, that opened the doors that showed Hollywood, that New York was back open for business. And then, you know, we, you know, we were home to Al Pacino's uh, Academy Award winning movie, Scent of a Woman. And then the most recent Scorsese film, The Irishman. So it's a real mix of size and styles and types of production that we, we uh, do here. And we want everyone to be proud of what's taking place here. 
And then, you know, for people that aren't familiar, I mean, you really have the facilities and the technology that then allows anyone that's shooting a, a film or a commercial or a series to come in and produce it. Am I getting that correct? Yes, you are. So, you know, we talked about a lot of things that were driving the, the film industry in New York. I mean, part of it is the overall industry trend, but um, we also, New York has supported the industry through tax incentives. So can you explain how the tax incentives work and why it's needed? You want me to go, Tracy? <laughs> this is one of your favorite topics, Hal. Go ahead. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> what it is, is, again, a little bit of history. I talked about Angels, uh, uh, Angels in America that came in after 9-11. By the end of 03, there was no one coming into New York. And I was calling friends that were production heads in California, and they basically told me straight out, they are no longer budgeting New York. And they're no longer budgeting New York because the difference in cost to do the same project in New York versus Toronto, North Carolina, even LA, uh, was anywhere from 30 to 40% different. And so what was happening was the creative producer was losing the argument to the boss. So you're the boss, Tracy and I come in. Tracy says, it is, it is better for the show. We have an actor that wants to live there. We can put all this on the screen. And I come in and I say to you, I'm from the accounting department. And I say, but boss, it's going to cost 40% more. You're telling Tracy, sorry, we're going someplace else. Mm -hmm. And so what we were getting was what we called the hero shot. You would go do the, build the sets in Toronto or someplace else, give that town nine months of work, grab your actors, and stick them in front of an iconic New York building uh, and do what we call the hero shot so that they believe you were in the whole thing was done in New York. So we got the ability to be able to communicate with uh, Governor Pataki's team and convince them that you needed to, to do this to save an industry. And now to me, tax credits work. Um, and it has nothing to do with what people like to call corporate welfare. It has to do with when a skilled labor force and infrastructure is losing jobs and business for reasons beyond their control. You know, it was just really the costs of New York were just higher than, you know, other places. Living costs are higher. Um, and yet, so all these people are now out of work and facilities are out of work for reasons beyond their control. And that's where government steps in. And that's what we really convinced them. And they we put in a minor tax credit relative to other parts of the world and found that the directors were coming out of the woodwork to use it. And what I want people to understand is there are tax credits everywhere. New York State gives some of the least amount to a production. You go to Jersey, you will get more money. You go to Massachusetts, you will get more money. New York has set a number that took this big difference in cost and try to narrow it to find a sweet spot. So if, if you were looking to buy a suit, you can go to two stores. One will cost you a little bit less money. One costs you a little bit more money, but you get better service. If it costs you a lot more money, you're not going. But what was the end result in terms of implementing the tax incentives for you know, productions to be done in New York? How does it get implemented? No, how, how has the implementation impacted the industry? Oh, it's the best marketing tool any industry could have ever had. Well, and I, I actually think it has seeded a period of growth here. And I, I always say that I think there was a time where film and television production was 
in industry, I think now it's become a pillar of the New York City economy and in some cases, New York State economy, because it has, you know, while the facilities are disproportionately located here in New York City, the tax revenues accrue up to the state, right? And I think we we really support an awful lot of jobs. And I think we, how, what was the last study that was done that not only does the tax credit pay for itself, it earns its, it, it, it earns it, its, it, it pays for itself that, and then some. It, it, we have enough data that shows it's making a positive return on the investment for the city and the state. Well, um, you have these productions that come in, they go into your studios, they, they film, how does that trickle down to the community or out to the community? Well, I mean, the best bet is going to be, you know, the best way to say it is we had a, a panel once and the producer of Men in Black 3 was on the panel. And she it was at the LIC Summit. Josh, do you remember that yeah. first, the first summit when Carol Cuddy, right? Right. The the LIC panel. And she oh. sat there and talked about how much money they spent at the local dry cleaner. Mm -hmm. and how much money they spent in the local pizzeria. Um, the impact is rather extraordinary. My, my lesson, first lesson, economic lesson actually was a Daily News article back in like 1991. And I cite it because the, there was a reporter that came to ask that same question. The impact of the studio was in the community. And if you remember, there was a restaurant on, on Broadway called The Bank. It's on 35th Street and, and, and Broadway. And they quoted him as saying, that I didn't know what I was doing. I was trying to charge too much, too much money. So the stage was empty and his lunch business was down 70%. Down 70% because my, our stages weren't booked at that time. Now you had no reason to understand that there was a union issue between New York and LA at the time. So there was no one to sell to. It had nothing to do with whether I was charging a dollar or $10. But the fact that we had an impact like that on 70% of the man's lunch business taught me a huge lesson of what the impact really is to the studio uh, uh, upon, the, upon the community as a whole. You know, talking about content, obviously myself being in the media business, content is king. And it certainly seems in film and production, it's exploding because of all these streaming services that are now producing their own content besides playing other people's content. And, um, you know, you just recently opened state-of-the-art sound stage as well as office space above it on the, the lot there. And I'm curious how that space is doing and how it's doing with the pandemic impacting the industry. Well, we're, we're very fortunate that the content, can uh, you know, in some ways people want content to continue to be produced to, even during this time. I would say that some of the streaming services have seen their growth grow like crazy during this period because folks were home a lot more still keeping things fairly close to home. And our new stages were, um, they, they were rented before we finished construction and production moved in in October. And, uh, you know, they're, they're gonna start filming shortly. So that's good news. And that there is a I don't know, about 15 or 16,000 square feet of third-party office space in the building that was taken as well. So there's still some space left to go, but we believe that, you know, as things normalize out and the pandemic will be, will be just fine with the new building. I mean, we believed in the community, Josh. We believed in the fact that 
commercial office space was a growth area for the borough, for the Astoria and Long City area. COVID put a dent in that for a bit, uh, but I think, you know, we're a believer that it, it indeed will come back. Um, you know, from our perspective, quote, is someone, if you were in LA, you could be on the lot in an office space in, in, at Kaufman. Um, you don't have a lot of density. You know, you can park your car and walk up the steps. Um, it is, so I think that- And it's actually a beautiful building with great yes. views. <laughs> the decision we made will prove out to be very, very successful. And again, bring more activity, more tumult into the neighborhood that will help uh, add to the economic driver that the studio already is. Was there a you, shutdown for these studios during uh, the height of the pandemic? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I remember I was in Florida um, visiting family. I flew back on a Tuesday. By Friday, I shut down the company uh, to essential uh, personnel only. We were blessed with the ability and, and, and we did what we thought was the right thing, kept everybody on payroll. Yep. Uh, we eventually got a little help with PPP, which was you know good. Uh, and we've kept everyone on payroll. We wanted the, everyone to know because we're only as good as the people we have. And, mm -hmm. and that connection to our staff is, is, is very palatable. You know, you, you see it. Um, we're not a typical employer. You know, everyone becomes part of the Kaufman family. And, you know, as a small company, we get to know too much about everybody, actually. What makes it a good place? Production resume, for sure. Uh, July. July. We, were, we opened up with stage four. Uh, we officially opened up. We spent the time in between working on our protocols on, on how to come into the campus, uh, changing every public restroom faucet to hands-free, adding more wash, hand wash stations by the stages, creating uh, wellness spots for productions to come in so they could screen their own people as we were screening people coming in. Uh, and then as we said, we're tested on a weekly basis. We changed all the filters in the, the air conditioning systems. Dealing with COVID from an operational point of view for any company has been an enormous cost. To our clients, uh, they have even stricter protocols. They are spending uh, a tremendous amount of their budget on that. The shooting crew is tested anywhere from three to five days a week. Wow. Uh, now, there's month. actually a new position called the COVID compliance officer yeah. in the production world. Um, I think we, we are fortunate as an industry that everyone involved was committed to reopening safely before a vaccine was developed, before, you know, we, we wanted to get back to work and we all made the investment necessary to do it safely. And so far, so good, right, Hal? <laughs> oh, thank God. And, and the way the, the protocols are, they're, they're really amazingly strict. Um, mm -hmm. If you notice in LA, the governor made production an essential business. With the caveat, so long as they continue doing the protocols that they have in place because there is no one doing it as strictly as this. You know, we, you know they, they rent lunchrooms from us typically. You know, everybody goes eats lunch. We're out of lunchrooms um, because they have spread everybody out. So you and Tracy would be allowed to eat together. I would never be allowed in the same room with you. So that everything is containable. And if you don't have the right color band, you best not be near anyone in, uh, on the shooting crew. There was an interesting story that got told to us. You know, the guys on the construction team aren't supposed to be face-to-face -face with the shooting crew. 
the director wanted an in-person meeting with the construction head. He said, I can't do this over Zoom. I got a <laughs> guy named Henry. So they took poor Henry. They put a hazmat suit on the man <laughs> from top to bottom to bring him into a room where the director was so the director could have this conversation because they weren't going to risk that the director would potentially be uh, a subject to the virus. Um, so they take this incredibly seriously. Uh, and I don't mean to do it as say that as a joke. I'm saying it to the, the seriousness in which the industry is taking the need to be as safe as humanly possible mm-hmm. with a virus that you really don't have a whole lot of control over. Josh, you can see him me. wearing that hazmat suit. You <laughs> could see me. I'm in the office today. I have my colored COVID band on that shows me where I belong in the hierarchy of who I can interact with and that I passed all the medical protocols to walk in the door and everybody coming in our door has one of these in one shape or form color coded. So it's uh, it's real. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to get back into Kaufman as a real estate company, because that was really the founding of the family business was in real estate and real estate development. So in addition to the sound stages that we just talked about, in 2016, you guys developed a 33-unit condo project called the Marks, which is really next door to the studios. Can you talk a little bit about that project and, and what you learned from it, as well as what the demand was like? Sure, I understand some of the reasoning. You know, George Kaufman was a little bit hesitant because he kept saying to me, "It's small," and I go, "This can't be bigger." You know, this is what they allow us to build. But the, one of the arguments that we all talked about was, "How do I spur?" more residential development in our pocket of Astoria. And we thought that was important. We thought that if we broke the ice doing that of a, and create a, a quote unquote luxury building that had not really been in our pocket of Astoria before, we could break the ice. And I think that's what happened. You know, our neighbor went ahead and broke ground and built a rental building next well, to it. Uh, I, I think that's right. But I think how to put it in the trendy, the trendy terminology, I think for a long time, we've recognized that the studio had the commercial capability to drive that type of of economic activity, but without the residential development to support a real 24-7 neighborhood, it gives you more power to support the neighborhood at large, the small businesses, the local businesses, the restaurants, the bars, and it's all part and parcel. And we saw having the ability to do this condominium building as just another piece in the puzzle that Hal alluded to back in the very early days here. And I think it was an incredibly successful experience in that we believed that there would be demand. We were absolutely floored by how much demand and how quickly we sold 100% of those units before we were done with construction. Like it, there, there is a demand to be here. And, and one of the things we saw and the brokers told us that a very large percentage of the people, especially in the beginning, were people that had been renting here in mm-hmm. the and wanted to stay in there. So I think it was a real testament to uh, the community that these folks wanted to invest their money and to stay uh, right where they were renting. And, uh, and, and so I, I was very heart, heart, heart lifted by that. Well, I'd love to hear more about your next real estate project you have planned. It's in partnership with uh, Silverstein Properties, and they're obviously well known uh, behind the site of the World Trade Center now, the Freedom Tower. 
And it's an ambitious project called Innovation Queens that covers a five block stretch south of Fifth Avenue. It would include parks, shops, and about 2,700 apartments. So can you fill us in on that project and share some of the details? Yeah, I mean, you know, in some ways we're, we're very excited because this is a real opportunity to grow this concept of creating a, an even broader 24-7 neighborhood here in our part of, of Astoria. It's expanding on the Kaufman Arts District success. And when I talk to people about it, we want to take all the good stuff that's happening on 35th Avenue and extend it eastward all the way down to Northern Boulevard. And we're very fortunate to have a partnership in place that believes in making this about how we can use, five blocks is so unusual. How can we do this to make it about delivering community services that the community says it wants, that community board leaders, the community leaders generally say they want. And I think high on our list, we built a plan with the ODA architecture as our master plan architect. Open space, public open space is the foundation of the plan. Commercial office space to fuel continued economic growth for the creative class of industries that are locating here residential to support the retail, the local retail we're trying to create. You know, it, it's it's all part and parcel with the same idea and, and the commitment to the community that the studio has long believed in also extends in that we are creating these partnerships with existing local community organizations, whether it be Jacob Reese or, or the LGBT network to really keep them grounded in the neighborhood, set them up to expand their services in the neighborhood. And we're, we're, we're really looking forward to, to creating something that we hope is about the existing community as much as it's about doing something for the future of this neighborhood. At a time where I will point out, we're talking about $2.2 billion of private investment at a time where I think our, our the economic outlook right now for New York City is a little concerning. So I, I think it's also an important time to be reinvesting in our city. So there's no question that we need jobs. And, um, mm -hmm. but I guess we all know the political winds have shifted in Queens, particularly in your backyard, far left. And, um, you know, the project will need rezoning required. So I guess my question is, you know, how do you address some of those concerns and overcome them. You know, this is where I get in trouble from Tracy because I, I really speak from my heart. The, the political winds are probably the single biggest disappointment concerning this area that I can remember. I think everyone uh, with the, the groupings that are pushing that have taken a broad brush and painted everybody the same. And the truth is we're not. Kaufman is a developer that has, I think, done some amazing things uh, for this community with the community thought in mind. Kaufman is not going anywhere. You know, the, I can't pick the studio up and leave. The studio is sticking around. Um, so there's a commitment to this community. And one of the things we understand is that if you don't create economic drivers for a, a community like this, you're going to have deeper trouble down the line. Um, and as Tracy just said, 
This is the time we need to invest in our city. Uh, and more important, this time we need to invest in our community and our side. And this is the opportunity, and I've said this to the community board leaders, this is the opportunity where you get to look at the developer in the eye and say, I know you're putting a park over there. Can you make it a little bigger? You know, we need yep. some medical services. You know, can you arrange to make sure that, that that's in place? These are the things we need in our community. You know, they love to say, well, go fix the MTA. I can't fix the MTA, right? That's not my job. My job is to be able to create a, a, a benefit to the community as a whole that creates an economic driver. And I think for our community, it's going to need more than one eventually, you know, uh, but it's got to start somewhere. You look at Steinway Street and the difficulties that it's had um, even before COVID mm -hmm. and now after COVID. You, you, you need to be able to uh, get economic drivers. And I keep repeating that word because it's not going to come from the government. It's not going to come from other sources. It's going to come from development. And this is a development that doesn't displace any residential property. And it doesn't displace commercial property either because the theater property that is included in the development site is going to be an anchor tenant in, in the proposal that's currently under consideration at city planning. Um, we're working with the PC Richards folks to see if we can find them a site nearby they would like to be located to. And we are, I think it's also worth pointing out that this is about creating a holistic community that continues the kind of forward momentum our all neighborhoods need, right? Because just, just running in place doesn't help you grow. And I think the winds of change that make a lot of our neighbors uncomfortable, I'm not saying they're not real, but as Hal pointed out, we're a development team who is open to a conversation and we're doing this in a very transparent way. It's a little hard during a pandemic. We, you know, rolling this out in March <laughs> was not yeah. easy, but we're trying to do as much as we can. And we've done a lot of reaching out and online survey work and stakeholder conversations with different people in the community. And it's all with the idea of getting to hear from the people who are here how they would like to shape this development and use this opportunity to let your voice be heard. Because we're talking about a lot of benefits that people all over the political spectrum acknowledge. Affordable housing is an issue. We're proposing 700 units, and that includes a senior component operated by Hannock, which is a very well-regarded Astoria-based institution. These are all positive things. How do we, how do we talk about the positive and the benefits in the community, um, and and really make this a dialogue? That's that's the goal here. You know, it's one thing to talk about the project, but I think seeing it with the uh, renderings is another, and learn more about it. What's the website where people can learn more about it? Uh, innovationqns.com, and you are invited to leave comments. That is one of our critical tools during the pandemic to reach out to folks. We encourage people to sign up and follow us uh, so that they can stay informed when we are able to present in a public forum. Um, and it will also notify you to uh, milestone events on city planning's calendar as we go through the urban land use review process, because we will be going through a very public process to get this done.
you know, in closing for each of you, what do you love most about Astoria and how do you feel the future of the neighborhood looks post pandemic? So when I first started working here in my current role, it was almost 11 years ago now. And I think I was struck that this was a really unique and special place to work, not just the studio itself, but the larger environment in Western Queens. And that sounds a little sentimental, but truthfully, I think Josh, you have done a fair bit of work here. And I think our business leaders, our businesses, the community organizations, and for a long time, the politicians all work together to really be our own cheerleaders in Western Queens. And I think that made this a really special place. You have leaders like Liz at the Long Island City Partnership who were great advocates, but I think we were all working on it together. And I think that makes this a really special place to live and work and play. I think I'd like to, cons I, I would really like to see that, that momentum continue forward. I think that that's what makes us unique and still keep the flavor that's here not change it, but that is the sauce that makes this special and unique from other neighborhoods in Manhattan, in Manhattan or other parts of Queens or Brooklyn. How, what about the future of the neighborhood? The, um, you know, I, I'm with Tracy on what she's saying and, 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 you know, having been here since 1980 and uh, seeing the, the family neighborhood that it was and how it started to attract younger folks to want to come here and kind of uh, change it and create that economic growth was something that was, you know, inspiring and especially feeling that you were really a part of it. Um, uh, I'll be honest, today I, I am concerned about the uh, community in a post-pandemic uh, arena. And that goes back to your other question in terms of the political wins. You know, uh, I see it, you don't have to be a genius to see what's happening, like I said, on Steinway Street or Broadway and, and what's happening in some of the small businesses here that was occurring prior to COVID. And certainly with the pandemic, it has made it yet a, a tougher scenario. Uh, we're embedded in this community and we realize that change is always hard. And we've faced that several times, even bringing the theater in. I'll never forget community board <laughs> meeting being told that if you allow this theater to come, you will have the gangs hanging out in the corner and the traffic backed up these rivers. You're smiling, but people really believe that because someone was telling them. And um, my concern is that people are telling them with this broad brush that economic growth is a bad thing. And that's really a falsehood. Um, I think thoughtful, thoughtful development will bring good things to this neighborhood. We can create a, a community that continues to be a place that you can live and work in and play. Um, you can, you can do things, but if you, if you let things wither, then why are you going to want to be here? Well, listen, if you think about it, anyone under the age of 30 has not really seen a New York City that was a scary place. Yeah, that's correct. You know, I think everyone has to remember that 2021 will be one of the biggest election cycles in New York City in recent history. And because of the city council turnover, yeah. In the mayoral you know, seat and a lot of other citywide offices, so... And with that, Hal and Tracy, thank you so much for being with us today and discussing Storia and the, the film industry. And it's great to catch up with well, you. Josh, we thank you. We thank you for all you do and, and, and Schnapps Media does. Um, you are a great uh, asset to uh, the boroughs. 
It's our pleasure. We have fun doing it. Thank you. And it's good to see you. Likewise. Make sure to check out a new episode of Schneps Connects every week, wherever you get your podcast or stream us online at podcast.schnepsmedia.com. Thank you.